Um, If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 41. Psalm 119, verse 41. And um, as you're turning there, uh, I do just want to mention that I was uh, in San Francisco all day yesterday uh, at San Francisco Bible Church, uh, one of our, our sister churches. Uh, they, they go to CBM camp with us, and we certainly have a lot of uh, overlap with them. Actually, many of our members uh, used to be there at some point, and so uh, we're, we're thankful for that church. And um, I was there for uh, an ordination council for Roger Jong. Some of you know Roger. Uh, he's been a pastor there for several years, and um, he works uh, with, with the youth there, and he is up at CBM camp. And so if you have any if you have kids in the junior high, high school range, they would know Roger. So I was able to participate in his ordination council yesterday to just publicly affirm uh, his, his fitness, his qualification to ministry. And so that was a joy to do that. It's, it's just sweet to be able to fellowship with other churches of like faith uh, and just seeing how they are striving uh, together for the sake of the gospel. So uh, anyhow, I just want to let you know about that. That's always exciting to know what's going on and what the Lord is doing. Uh, well, uh, recently, uh, I, I found an article uh, from Psychology Today with the, t- the title, uh, Why Self-Confidence is More Important Than You Think. Um, and they, they gave several reasons. I'll just highlight a few of them. Why self-confidence is more important than you think. One reason, less fear and anxiety. Another reason, greater motivation. Another reason, more resilience. More resilience. Another one, improved relationships. And at the bottom of that article, they had a, a couple action steps. Uh, how do you grow in self-confidence? In other words, this is such a great thing, so helpful. So how do you grow in self-confidence? And, and the two tips they had at the bottom, uh, write down a favorite confidence quote and put it somewhere you'll see often. Uh, another one, put up a photo of yourself from a time you felt confident and successful and hang it on your fridge or your bathroom mirror. Uh, for me, that would be when I played sports as a junior high kid, that was when I peaked out athletically. But uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was interesting to read just kind of how those who uh, don't have the hope of the gospel, how they would find self-confidence, um, and, and even to consider the, the issue of self-confidence itself. Is that, a, is that a good thing? Is that a helpful thing? Certainly there is a, a healthy kind of confidence, um, but there's also a real sense in which self-confidence uh, can be a, a form of selfishness, a form of sinful pride. Not, not all self-confidence is, is good. It can be sinful pride, but, but yes, there is a type of confidence that can be healthy. There's a type of confidence that can be life-giving. There's a, a type of confidence that can give joy and peace. After all, it, it is good, right? It is good to live with less fear and anxiety. It is good to live with greater motivation. It is good to live with more resilience when things get hard. It is good to have improved relationships. These are all good things. But the question is, how do you find, how do you develop and grow that kind of confidence? Where does that come from? Where does that kind of confidence come from? And if you, if you find that confidence in yourself, you will either become arrogant or conceited when you are succeeding in life, or you'll become devastated and depressed when you're struggling in life. If your confidence is in yourself, then your feelings will rise and fall depending on how successful you are. And if your confidence is in yourself, you'll be blown around by the storms of life because your life is simply not stable enough of a foundation. So this morning, I want us to consider Psalm 
119 verses 41 to 48, which I believe highlights the joy of confident hope. The joy of confident hope, of confidence in the Lord. That, that confidence and that hope is not rooted and grounded in yourself, but instead that confidence and that hope is rooted in God, in His person and character, but also in His unchanging, unbreakable, and sure Word. And so uh, we're looking at eight verses from Psalm 119. If, if you've uh, come to the church in the past year, uh, you might be surprised why we're in Psalm 119. We're kind of going through an intermittent series on Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the entire Bible with 176 verses, and so we're not doing them all at once. Uh, but uh, we're taking a few stanzas at a time. Psalm 176 is, or sorry, 119 rather, is so long because it's a huge acrostic poem. You know, you know what an acrostic is? It's where you have a word and you take the, the, the letter from each word, or sorry, each letter you, you make a word or a line. Out of, okay, I'm, I'm totally butchering that. You know what an acrostic is. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. There we go. That's a, that's a, that's a great acrostic for you. Two for one. That's a freebie. All right. So, uh, Psalm 119 is an acrostic poem with 22 stanzas because there are 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So in some ways, this is a psalm about the Word of God that covers it from A to Z, so to speak. 26 letters, so there's 26 stanzas, eight verses in each stanza, and each stanza all begins with the same Hebrew letter. That's why uh, you see little headings at the top of each section of eight verses with a little Hebrew letter perhaps in your Bible. So it's a huge acrostic poem going from A to Z, so to speak, about the Word of God, about the power of God's Word, about the beauty of God's Word, about the worth of God's Word, about the goodness of God's Word. It's a love song, in a sense, to the Word of God and to the God of the Word. And we we don't know who wrote it necessarily. Some think David, some think Daniel, some think Ezra. Uh, Ultimately, we don't know who the human author was, but, but certainly this is of divine origin through the Holy Spirit. And, and this particular stanza of Psalm 119 is special. It's special because when the author came to this stanza, he said, wow. That's why it says wow at the top of your, your, your heading. That's a terrible joke. And in fact, some of your Bibles might say vav because there's some debate about how to pronounce that particular Hebrew letter. It's wow or vav. Not sure. It was a cheap joke and I took it. All right. So Psalm 119 and we're looking at verses 41 to 48, and let me, let me read those verses for us. The Word of God says this, Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually, forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. This is the Word of God. So this, this psalm, this stanza, 
of, of Psalm 119, I believe, highlights the importance, the, the joy of confident hope. The psalmist here writes of his confidence and his hope, his assurance in God's word that allows him to face his enemies who taunt him, that allows him to stand before kings with resilience, that allows him to walk in obedience with great motivation. Uh, This confidence drives the psalmist, and we want to be like him, one who loves God's word because we love God. And so as we walk through this, I want to give you just three points about confident hope. Three points about confident hope, and they're going to be this. Confident hope is built on trusting God's word. Confident hope is built on trusting God's word. Second, confident hope practices and preaches God's word. And lastly, confident hope grows from loving God's word. So let's take those in turn here. The the, the first heading for you to consider is that confident hope is built on trusting God's word. God's word. And for that, I want you to look at those first three verses again. It says, Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. You see here that the psalmist talks about trust in God's word, talks about hope in God's word. Even such that the psalmist says, I'll have an answer. I'll have an answer for him who taunts me. I'll have an answer to my enemies. I'll have an answer for those who would seek to tear me down, rip me apart, undermine me, and cast me aside. See, in the face of opposition, in the face of taunts, in the face of of those who would scoff and scorn, it's easy to lose confidence. It's easy to become timid. It's easy to become fearful. But the psalmist says, no, I I have an answer. I have a hope. I have a trust. And what is that trust in? It's in God's word. It's in God's word. His confident hope is built on trusting God's word. And and a couple subpoints here to to consider. First, he's trusting God's word for salvation. He's trusting God's word for salvation. Verse 41, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. That word steadfast love is, is, is rich. It, it's, a, it's a word with a lot of meaning. It, that, that word is incredibly difficult to translate. That's why some translations say steadfast love. Some say loving kindness. And actually the Hebrew in there is, is plural. Let your steadfast loves, let your loving kindnesses, let them come to me. There's this overabounding nature to God's steadfast love. Uh, God, let your, in the Hebrew word, you've heard me mention this before, it's the word chesed. Let your chesed, your, your plural chesed, let your steadfast love, your, your unending love, your unbreakable, loyal love, some people translate it that way. Let this love come to me. This is his prayer. God, let that love come to me, O Lord, and that love is not just found in material blessings. It's not just found in, in comfort or a good name or success. That, that steadfast love comes ultimately in, in the channel of salvation. He says, let your steadfast love come to me, your salvation. The psalmist was looking for deliverance from God. 
Yes, deliverance from God, uh, uh, deliverance by God from his enemies, deliverance from perhaps temporal circumstances, but ultimately this idea of salvation would grow to, to mean something far greater than deliverance from temporary issues, but deliverance from our sin, deliverance from the wrath of God, deliverance from our greatest problems, salvation, to know God, to have our sins forgiven. And it says this salvation according to your promise, O Lord. This salvation was according, and I love the specificity here, it's not just according to your word, but God, it's according to your promise. It's according to your promise. All the way back in Genesis 3, at the very moment that sin entered the world, God was already ready to give a promise. In Genesis 3, when, when Eve ate the fruit and, and gave the fruit to Adam, and Adam ate the fruit and sin entered the world because, because of this transgression, God there in Genesis 3.15 makes a promise. He says, I will put enmity between the woman, the seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent. There will be a seed of the woman, an offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. This is the first promise the first hint of the gospel. And, and the Old Testament builds upon that promise. That would be a descendant, an offspring of the woman from Adam and Eve. It would be one from, uh, from, from Abraham's loins. It would be one from the tribe of Judah. It would be one from the line of David. There would be one who would come and undo the works of Satan, who would undo the, the curse, who would roll back the curse, roll back the thorns and the thistles, roll back sin and suffering and death and hell itself. There would be one who would come, and you know it's sure because it's according not to our hope. Adam and Eve didn't even pray for that, but instead it's, it's sure because it's according to God's promise, and God will not break his word. So I love what the psalmist is doing here in verse 41. The psalmist is praying according to God's promise. You know, sometimes people ask this question, if God is sovereign, if he's going to fulfill his word, why pray? That's a silly question. We pray because God will fulfill his word. And so we pray, God, do it. God, bring your salvation. God, let your, let your loving kindnesses, let your steadfast love, let your loyal, unbreakable, faithful, unchanging love come to me. There's this desperation and yet this hope. It's according to your promise and you will not fail. Friend, do you know about that salvation? That salvation is revealed in the pages of Scripture. There's no other way to know God but through His Word. And He gives us His mercies and His salvation through it. That, that, that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to take our penalty, to die in our place, that we might be forgiven if we trust in Him. And He raised Jesus from the dead, showing that death has been defeated, and friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know that message, or maybe you've heard it before, but you have not fully trusted in Christ, you've not fully turned from your sins to put your hope in Jesus, the one who would undo the curse, the one who took upon himself the wrath of God that we might be forgiven. If you've never put your faith in him, I would, I would beg you to do that. I would beg you to find out more about that, that you would be able to pray this prayer, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord your salvation according to your promise. God will be faithful to fulfill that word, to save all who would trust in him. 
So there's this confident hope that comes from trusting in God's word, first by trusting in God's word for salvation, but also trusting God's word amidst opposition. Trusting God's word amidst opposition. Look there at verse 42. Then I shall have an answer. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. If I know your salvation, if I know your steadfast love towards me, then I have an answer. I have an answer amidst opposition. I have an answer amidst my enemies. I have an answer. Instead of folding, instead of crumbling, I have resilience, not because of self-confidence, but because of God-confidence, because God's word is sure, because his salvation cannot fail. If I know that God is for me and not against me, and I know that not because of my righteousness, I know that God is for me and not against me because Jesus has died in my place. Because of that, I have confidence. I have an answer for him who taunts me. For I trust in your word. You know, when I was younger, I I, I struggled to understand some of the Psalms because the Psalms talk so much about enemies. Have you ever noticed that? The Psalms talk about my enemy this, my enemy that. And you're like, man, David, you were, you were hated. You had a lot of haters. Haters going to hate, man. What's going on? And I couldn't relate. I couldn't relate because obviously I'm such a likable guy. Because <laughs> I'm a people pleaser. I don't like to make people upset. But as I've gotten older, a, a little bolder perhaps with the truth, I've come across opposition. I've come across people who have said things to my face and behind my back, as I'm sure you have too. You just have to live long enough. Even just recently, I had a little uh, uh, messaging back and forth with uh, someone I knew back from elementary school. And uh, I had made a a comment online, praise God for Roe v. Wade being overturned. Because, not because I'm trying to be political, but because I, I care about the image of God in the unborn. And uh, I had a little interchange with this, this acquaintance of mine from elementary school, and after trying to graciously explain why I would hold to such a belief, um, he, he said these words, I, I think you are likely a bad person who is not willing to engage someone who is dishonest in their dealing, and someone who probably needs to do a lot of work in the realm of spirituality and being a decent human. It's like, oh, I'll be honest with you. Part of me inside was like, what? (laughs) I want to defend myself. And I thought to myself, the Psalms have something to say about this. And there's times you need to give an answer, and there's times you don't in that moment. I'm a worse person than he realizes. I'm a sinner. I'm so bad, Jesus had to die for me. I'm not a decent person. I'm not. But I have no need to defend myself, not because I have self-confidence, but because I've trusted in God's word for salvation. You know, I wonder if one of the reasons why you see so much hatred in the world, so much anger, is because people want to prove their righteousness. They want to prove themselves right. They want to defend themselves because they know they have no righteousness of their own. So there's a fragility. There's a desperation to justify oneself. Friend, if you know Jesus, you are justified. 
You have no need to prove yourself. You have no need to defend yourself. You're righteous in Christ. And when you know your sins are forgiven, when you know you stand righteous in Christ, you, you, you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, you have no need to defend yourself with anger. You have no need to be defensive. You can have a gentle answer to those who taunt you because you trust in God's word. Do you trust God's word for salvation? If you do, then you can trust God's word amidst opposition. I wonder as believers if, if, if we need to take this idea to heart more and more as we walk in a world that is more and more opposed to God. I want you to remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Turn, turn there. In Matthew 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, right in the beginning, Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verse 10. Jesus said these words, Blessed are those who, per- who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice, why? Because your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice, why? Because you have salvation, because you've trusted in God's word. You can rejoice when you're taunted. You can rejoice when you're persecuted. You can rejoice when you're slandered. Why? Because your hope is somewhere else. You have a confident hope in heaven because you have confident hope in God's word. Friend, the world will hate you if you stand with Christ. Far too many of us want to be liked. And the greatest fear is to be disliked. We need to crucify that sin in our hearts. Don't go be a jerk for Jesus. Don't go be hateful, spiteful, argumentative, self-righteous, condemnatory. Let's not be that. But if we walk with Christ and speak the truth, no matter how gently, how gracious, you will have opposition. Will you put your confident hope in Christ, in his word? So confident hope is built on trusting in God's word. Verse 43, he says, Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. He's hoping in God's word. That's the first point here. Confident hope is built on trusting God's word. Secondly, confident hope practices and preaches God's word. uh, Confident hope practices and preaches God's word. Look at the next three verses. Verse 43, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. And I shall walk in a wide place for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. There's a connection there to verse 44. Because he has this hope, because he trusts in God's word, because he has hope in God's word, because he is waiting for the loving kindnesses of God, for the salvation of God, therefore I will keep your law continually forever and ever. I will walk in a wide place. He, he says he will do these things. I will keep your law. I will walk and I will speak. I want you to understand here that, that grace that saves is grace that sanctifies. Do you understand that? Grace that saves is grace that sanctifies. Because God's salvation comes to the psalmist, 
Because God's salvation comes to you and I, we don't just say, good, I'm, I'm saved from my sins, now I can live in it. No, not at all. We're saved from our sins, now we should repent of it. We're saved from our sins, now let's walk in righteousness. Because God's salvation has come to me, I will keep your law. And the order of that is so important. It's not, I keep your law so that I have salvation. Your salvation is mine. It's promised to me, and therefore, now I want to live. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. That, that emphasis there shows his, his heart. I want to do this with no break. There's no, there's no quiet corner where I retreat to, to, to engage in sin hypocritically. He says, all of my life, forever and ever, continually, every moment of my life, I long to keep your law, O oh God. And, and in one sense, this is a an expression almost of a vow, but it's, it's really a, almost a prayer wish. God, help me to keep your law continually. And then I love verse 45. It says, and I shall walk in a wide place, in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. What does that mean? You know, maybe you're thinking, didn't Jesus say that broad is the path to destruction? What's going on here? No, 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 that's not what... Jesus is talking about something different. That's true, but that's not what it's saying here. When it says here, I will walk in a wide place, wide in contrast to narrow. How many of you guys have watched like gymnastics at the Olympics, right? You've watched that balance beam? That's some scary stuff. I don't even think I could walk on that thing. And you have people doing backflips. It's beyond me. Again, junior high is when I petered out athletically, so maybe back then I could have. I walk in a wide place. There's security. There's freedom. I'm not restricted to this narrow path. There's freedom. There's broadness. I'm not tottering on the edge of of falling over. I have security. When I keep your law, oh God, I have freedom and I have security. I walk in a wide place. Why? For I have sought your precepts. And maybe this sounds a little confusing to you. Again, this is under that idea of grace that saves, also sanctifies. When, when we're saved by God's grace, we're going to be sanctified by His grace. When we're saved by the promise of His salvation, we'll be sanctified by the Word of God also. We're going to walk according to His Word. We're going to seek His precepts. And that's going to affect the way we walk. And maybe you are saying, that's, that seems counterintuitive. If I follow God's laws, that seems to be very narrow and constricting. Why does he say that when I seek God's law, it's actually a wide path? What's going on here? When you follow God's law, there's freedom. There's joy. First John would say that his commands are not burdensome. Right? Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Why is that? just want you to consider for a moment Shoelaces on ice skates. Shoelaces are meant to constrict your feet to those skates. You tie them tight. You put them on so your foot doesn't wiggle around. You don't want your foot to pop out of the skate in the middle of things. You tie it tight to keep the skate on your feet. And if those skates are on your feet, are your feet restricted? You could say that in some degree, but if your skates are on, you have freedom all over the ice rink, don't you? 
If your skates are loose, we wobbling, tripping, falling. There's no freedom. There's no security. God's laws give us freedom and security to live the way He designed, to live the way that we would actually want if we were thinking rightly, to live with joy, to live with confidence, to live with hope, to live with love. God's law helps us to walk with freedom and stability in those ways. Maybe another way to say it is is saying it this way, God's law says, don't walk into this jail cell. And you say, oh, God's law is so restricting. I'm going to walk in there just to show how free I am. And on the way in, you hear the door close, and you think, see how free I am? All you people out there, I was free to come in here. God's laws protect us from our sin. They keep us walking in a broad path where there's freedom, there's security, there's joy. So he says, I've sought your precepts, and I walk in a broad place. Theologian Anthony Hokema once said this. He said, Man is bound to God as a fish is bound to water. When a fish seeks to be free from water, it loses both its freedom and its life. When we seek to be free from God, we become slaves of sin. So the psalmist here says that confident hope will practice God's word. It's going to sanctify you, but also it's going to preach God's word. Right? Grace that saves, not only sanctifies, grace that saves is grace that must be shared. Grace that saves is grace that must be shared. Look at verse 46. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. He hopes in God's word. He trusts in God's word because through God's word comes salvation. So he obeys it, but he also speaks it. He proclaims it. He shares it. He preaches it. Before kings, no less. And and again, we don't know who wrote this. Uh, Certainly, David would stand before foreign kings. Certainly, Daniel in Babylon would stand before Nebuchadnezzar. But we don't know for sure. But this psalmist says, I will speak of your testimonies before kings. Not just to neighbors, not just to friends, not just to my children, not just to my family, not just to those who have no power over me, but I will speak even to those who have the power of life and death in their hands. What makes him able to stand before kings? Confident hope in God's word. Confident hope in God's word. Confident hope in God's salvation. Not a confidence in self. Not a confidence in in the, the persuasiveness of himself, but confident hope in God's law. He's going to speak of God's law before kings and not be put to shame. I think there's a kind of a a similar note here about having an answer to him who taunts him. He's not scared of opposition, and he's not scared of, of those in power because he is trusting in God's word. Friends, if you if you believe, if you believe the gospel. If I believe the gospel, if I believe that the God of the universe would be right to punish me, and yet in love for me sent his one and only son to die in my place that I might be forgiven, and it's 
This gift that's to be received by faith, not by works, not by working hard enough or being good enough. If, if I really believe this, this is the best news ever. And if I believe this enough to rest my eternal soul upon this message, then why would I not be willing to share it with others? And why would you? If we really believe this message is not just a matter of life and death here, but life and death eternally. If we believe that what's at stake is eternal punishment or eternal happiness. Then a little social awkwardness should be no obstacle. We should have no fear. We should not have shame before kings, before neighbors, before friends, before family. There's too much at stake. Confident hope practices and preaches God's word. I believe these things are true, therefore I must speak. Paul would say, I believe, therefore I spoke. Paul would say in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Do you believe that? Do you speak that? You know, when, when, I, when I pray for gospel opportunities, I somehow find them. I don't know if it's because they were always there, but I just see them now that I'm praying for them, or because God answered that prayer and is sending me opportunities for the gospel. Either way, it works. Would you pray for opportunities to speak the name of Christ, your Savior, to others? Would you pray for opportunities to share about the kindness of God? The kindness of God that leads to repentance. The kindness of God that would send his own son to die in our place. So confident hope is built on trusting God's word. Confident hope practices and preaches God's word. Last, confident hope grows from loving God's word. Confident hope grows from loving God's word. Look at the last two verses here. Why? What, what motivates him? to obey, what motivates him to speak, verse 47 says, for or because, because I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. The psalmist says the, the reason he obeys the reason he speaks God's word is because he loves God's word. He loves the word of God. He loves that the word of God is sure. It's a promise. He promises salvation. He loves God's word because it keeps him on the broad path of safety, security, and freedom. He loves God's word because it reveals to him God, the one whom he loves. He loves God's word, therefore he obeys God's word, therefore he speaks God's word. And you see the repetition there in verses 47 and 48. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. 
I will lift up my hands toward your, command, toward your commandments, which I love. He loves God's word. Do you? Do I? Do you love God's word because you see the hope that it gives? Do you even love the commandments of God's word because you understand his commands come from a father's heart who loves you and wants what's best for you? See, God's commands are not, hey, finish your Brussels sprouts. God's commands are, hey, eat another piece of filet mignon. If you're a vegetarian, you translate that for yourself. God's commands are for us. He's a God who gives. He doesn't take. His commands are for our everlasting joy, and therefore the psalmist, and therefore we should say, I delight. I delight in your commands, O God. Your commandments which I love, I lift up my hands to your commandments which I love. And if you love God's word, you'll meditate, it says, on his statutes. You'll think upon it. You'll chew on it. You'll wrestle with it. You'll turn it over in your mind. What does this mean? How does this apply? What does this mean? How do I obey it? What does this mean about God? What does this tell me about myself? What does this tell me about how I'm to live to honor him? What does this tell me about how I'm to live that I might Bring glory and honor to him and and joy to myself. God, I want to know your law because I want to know you. I want to know your law because I want to please you. And and friends, I I I don't say this up here as one who has arrived, but I read that and say, God, make me like that. God, make our church like that. To not be fearful of what the world might throw at us, to not be fearful of what others might say about you, to not be angry or spiteful, to not be defensive, to not retreat in fear, but to stand with a humble and yet confident hope because you know whom you have believed, that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us his word, that God himself has given us the promise of his salvation. Therefore, we have confidence. Would it be our prayer as a church Would it be your prayer as an individual? Would it be your prayer for your family as a parent that this would reflect your heart, that this would be your life, this would be your heart's desire, that we would delight in God's laws which we love? Friends, I want to encourage you, find find ways. And and to, to eat both ease some people's consciences and to perhaps prick some people's consciences. What's interesting here is there's no verse that says, read your Bible. But it says, meditate on his statutes. For some of you, you're chewing on his word all the time because you've memorized it. You're thinking about it. You're listening to it. You're talking about it. Praise God. Now, to be sure, you can't do that without reading it at some point. But for others of you, can I challenge you? Reading a chapter and checking off a box is not what this says. 
May we be a people who will read his word, who set aside time, who make a plan to read his word, but not just to read it, to meditate on it, to think upon it, to dwell upon it, to feed upon it, and then to live it out, and then to speak it to others. May that mark us as a church, that we might live with the joy of confident hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning reminded of the treasure that you have given us in your word, the infinite riches and treasures of your word that are more precious than gold, that are sweeter than honey. Lord, some of us, some of us, we confess our hearts are cold towards your word because we are cold towards you. Oh Lord, revive us again, cause us to repent, and cause us to treasure you, cause us to be people of your word who delight in your law, who love your law, who obey your law, and who share your law with others. Help us, Lord, for the sake of Christ and for his name, in which we pray. Amen.